Welcome to the Christian Drummers Podcast, discussing the art of drumming to the glory of Almighty God. Howdy, friends. This Thursday is Ascension Day, and so for this episode, I'm simply going to repost the audio from a video that I made a couple of years ago dealing with all the scriptures that speak of our Lord's Ascension. It's a really important doctrine. And it's the entire reason you and I can come before the Father. So, take a listen. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it blesses you this week. Okay. Howdy, friends. I hope you enjoy the glare off my head. I'm coming to you from my drum studio, obviously. Um, I wanted to do something different this year. Every year around Ascension Time, I start lighting up your social feed with an appeal to celebrate Ascension Day. Um... The Ascension is a really important doctrine that really has mostly been lost by those of us who call ourselves evangelicals. And that's kind of weird because it used to be a bigger deal than Christmas. And, you know, we're the ones who say we believe the Bible and everything that it teaches. And Jesus is our Lord and he's the king and king this, king that, kingdom this, kingdom that. And we don't celebrate the day that he actually sat down to reign. Okay, so that's a little weird to me. And so I'm hoping to get you to start thinking about this and, you know, perhaps finding a church, if yours doesn't observe it, to go worship him on the holiday. It is a holy day. So anyway, what I'm going to do is just walk through some scriptures having to do with the ascension. Not all of them, but some really important ones. And I'm going to start with Psalm 2. Okay, Psalm 2 starts with the Lord saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. Especially note, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Okay. Now, jumping from there. Sorry, I have to do this every single time I go to a bookmark. <laughs> Jumping from there, I want to go to Psalm 110. This psalm is quoted so often by the apostles, and that's important because uh, they're they're using it to defend what they're saying about Jesus. Okay, so Psalm 110 just starts with, "The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. 
He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Now again, the apostles quote this as something having happened after Jesus has ascended into heaven and they're making their defense of their teaching, right? So we jump ahead to Isaiah. Every Christmas, we quote this over and over, and, you know, rightly so. But here it is. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay. Again, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's pretty straight ahead. Now, let's talk about his government as we look ahead to Daniel. Daniel interprets um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the, the image, right? Um, this one's kind of long, but I'm going to go ahead and read as much of it as I can. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, now let's find the interpretation of this. Let me, let me uh, I'll just start with this. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So his empire was the gold. Another king, kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, 
just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So this kingdom is visualized as this stone that grows into a mountain and fills the earth. One might say it fills the earth as water covers the sea, right? Well, let's look ahead to chapter 7 of Daniel, in which he sees this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, let's hang on to that, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Notice he's not coming from the Ancient of Days on the clouds. He's coming to the Ancient of Days with the clouds and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed okay so that's daniel's vision of the ascension we often think coming on the clouds everyone's so um everyone's just so indoctrinated with that being the idea of the second coming but he's coming with the clouds to the ancient of days right well, it talks about him being given dominion over everything and, and all nations serving him, right? Well, we jump ahead to the Great Commission and the Ascension account of Matthew. In St. Matthew, it says, of course, we know this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Hang on that and always remember that when you see any authority anywhere around you the president the congress your mayor a teacher the pastor anybody in your boss anybody in any position of authority is holding delegated authority because jesus said before he ascended all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Okay, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which let's stop on that and realize all nations doesn't mean go make disciples from every country, like you pick a few out. He says, go disciple the nations. Remember in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, this is the new King of Kings, Lord of Lords, sitting down to rule, basically saying, teach everyone to obey me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's look at the Ascension account from St. Mark. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, and then looking at St. Luke. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God seems like they understood the import of the fact that he went up into heaven. Um, now, the ascension account in Acts. I'll just start here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, they're asking about the kingdom their conception of the kingdom was still a little off in that they weren't yet connecting all the dots when he had just told them all authority in heaven and earth is mine. But they got it later because let's look ahead to St. Paul. St. Paul in Corinthians. He's talking about the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He delivers up the kingdom after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, we think of that as some cataclysmic time when suddenly Jesus is going to do all of that. But remember what was said in Psalm 110 that's going to be alluded to here. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And that's exactly what St. Paul refers to here. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay? So, what's happening is, Jesus as Messiah has ascended into heaven, having received all authority in heaven and on earth, as Daniel foresaw, as he told the apostles, as they saw happen, he sits down and begins to reign. Um, let me back up again to Acts real quick. I put some of my bookmarks out of order. And look at St. Peter saying kind of the same thing. Um, he's, he's quoting these Psalms and others to the Jews after the Pentecost event. He's, he's telling them, you know, what was foretold by Joel has happened. And he's saying, um, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I'm going to come back to that. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so moving from there to the epistle to the Hebrews, where the author, let's call him Paul, <laughs> speaks of this. He's, he's alluding uh, to some of the Psalms that I've just said. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings this firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And skip ahead. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, skipping ahead again, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay, and he, he alludes to this again, talks about the ascension, when he says, let me see if this is it. Now I'm going to get to that in a second. Sorry, the Logos app is a little uh, unwieldy with your bookmarks. Okay, again, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay, so let me kind of pause there and just talk about, well, actually, no, one more. St. John, in the Revelation, in the very first part of the book, okay, so whatever you want to say about what the events prophesied in the Revelation are, I'm per personally, I'm preterist, and I'm looking at that as mainly being about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Old Covenant world, but even if you're a dispensational premillennialist, you can't overlook the fact that before the visions even start happening, um, St. John calls Jesus this, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Okay, so let me stop there. Whatever you want to say about the future, whatever kind of millennialist you are, anything like that, St. John is saying Jesus is king now. St. Paul is saying Jesus is reigning now. Jesus himself says all authority has been given to me, all of it. He's not twiddling his thumbs waiting to get some authority. He's not waiting for somebody to grant him some authority. He's not waiting uh, to come assume some authority. He says he has it. The apostles say that he has it. We've always acted like he has it. But for some reason, and I think a lot of it has to do with simply losing sight of the holy day. A lot of us evangelicals don't really think of Jesus as being king of everything. You know, he's king in my heart. I've made him my personal Lord. And that pretty much means 
he kind of rules my personal morality and my behavior. But the scriptures say, and the church has said, he's the king of everything. It doesn't matter if people accept it. It doesn't matter if anyone rebels against it. He's still the king. Those in authority who misuse their authority and frankly use it in sinful ways and use it even against him and his people are still using authority that he has delegated to them. Now, Jesus is God and he's always reigned as God. He, he made everything in him all things consist. He upholds the world by the word of his power. So even the most sinful rebel, say the devil, is only able to do what he does because Jesus Christ is willing him to continue to exist. So that's that's not just rule, that's sovereign rule. That's every exhaustive detail in his hand. We know that. But this is speaking specifically of Messiah, the son of man. God has made him both Lord and Christ. And this is talking about his reign, this kingdom that was foretold in the Psalms and foretold in the prophecies came on the earth and Jesus ascended into heaven. He said so. All authority is mine. And he goes up in heaven, does exactly what Daniel saw him do, sits down to reign. He must reign until all his enemies are subdued, including death. So we need to get it out of our head that the devil rules the world. Indeed, Christ even went to the cross. He said, now is the time when the ruler of this world is being cast out. He has assumed authority. He is the emperor of the empire of heaven, which has come on the earth. And it's progressively spreading. Like, say, a stone that's growing to fill the whole earth, or leaven going through a lump of dough, or a tiny grain of mustard seed growing into the biggest tree. It happens slowly, but it happens. And you can't stop it. So, Christian, who believes in the Holy Scriptures, consider that Jesus is your king and that he sat down to become king 40 days after his resurrection. And that's worth a celebration, even if it's on a Thursday. Now, moving on, I want to talk about what the ascension means for worship because this will rock your world. It did mine. It's why I go to the kind of church that I go to. I'm going to go to Hebrews again, and I'm going to start in chapter 8. Let me see where I can start. I'm just going to read a lot of chapter 8 to you. Let me, let, me, um, let me start by talking about this. There's a sense in which the book of Hebrews is entirely about worship. The whole argument being made by the author, let's again, Colin Paul, is that um, you, you Hebrew Christians who are facing persecution are being tempted to return to the old covenant ways, the sacrifices, the temple, things that no one's about to start killing you for, can't do that because of the reality of pretty much the ascension. That's kind of his argument. Jesus has gone into heaven and your worship no longer happens there. And I'm going to tell you something really cool about that, too. 
Okay, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Jesus has gone into the true temple in heaven. The temple in Jerusalem was a copy of what's really in the heavens, God's throne room. And Jesus has entered into that real throne room. Now, if we move ahead to chapter uh, 10, waiting for my bookmark. Thanks, Lagos. Well, he, he says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us, opened for us through the curtain, the veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he saying? We have confidence to enter the holy places, the real temple, not the copy here on earth. We have confidence to enter the real temple through the veil that is through his flesh. The ascended humanity of our Lord Jesus is the veil. It's the way that we are able to enter into the real heavens. This isn't talking about how you get there when you die. This is talking about worship. And I'm going to jump ahead to the magnificent chapter 12. And the comparison, very similar to what St. Paul does in Galatians, to or of two mountains. Okay, Paul talks about two Jerusalems, but this is two mountains. For you, and this is plural, y'all, thanks Kemper, for y'all have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is talking about when the law was given at Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Read that over and over again. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. What is this heavenly Jerusalem? It's the same one I was saying. St. Paul says, Jerusalem below is Hagar. Jerusalem above is Sarah, our mother. That's what we are citizens of. This city that St. John sees come down from heaven where God dwells with men forever and ever is a symbol of the Jerusalem above, which is a picture of the church in heaven, worshiping God. Think of the revelation. When you look at chapters four and five, you see all the angels and all the saints gathered around our Lord, worshiping him. That's where this is past tense. Y'all have come because Jesus has opened a living way into the heavenly temple. Our worship doesn't happen in a church building. It's, it's not localized like that, like it used to be in the old covenant economy. Think of it as, Doug Wilson puts, puts it this way really brilliantly. Think that the roof of the church opens up and we're all beamed up into heaven together. And that's where we worship. It really happens that way. That's why, in what ought to scare a lot of us, he goes on to say, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverent and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The reason our worship needs to be acceptable, and I'll probably do a whole other video about that, characterized by reverence, fear, is because God is a consuming fire and we are in his presence for real. And it's not just the fact that we are in the heavenly temple with all the church around us, with all the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, as the prayer book puts it. It's not just that, but it is that. We are in front of a consuming fire. That's why it's a bad idea for us to get up there and act like idiots. Okay, but it goes deeper than that, and uh, I don't know if I bookmarked this, so I'll either look it up or just allude to it. Uh, well, this, this is going to be later. Okay, so anyway, this is real easy to, to do, and I don't need to read it to you. Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, right? And he basically calls her out on her multiple marriages and her fornication, right? And people like to say that she changes the subject and says, well, you Jews say we worship in Jerusalem, but our ancestors worship here on this mountain in Samaria. How about that, right? She's not changing the subject. She's asking an implicit question. And the question is this, where do I worship? Now, why would she bring that up after this man whom she is perceived to be a prophet has asked her or has, has confronted her with her behavior? Well, what would worship mean to a Jew or a half Jew, as the Samaritans are, um, in those days? 
It means sacrifices. She's asking the Lord, okay, Mr. Prophet, she thinks he's a prophet. You've convicted me with knowledge that only you could have by divine revelation. What do I do? What do I do to get right with God? Where do I go? And he says something that we have misinterpreted for so long. And the early church did not. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father, not on that mountain or this mountain, but in the spirit and in the truth. He says, we worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. That does not mean your heart and your head. It doesn't mean your emotions and your intellect. That's not what it means. It's talking about the location where the Father will be worshipped. The Father will be worshipped in the Spirit. Think of St. John in the Revelation. I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day. Immediately I was in the Spirit and sees all these heavenly visions. In the Spirit means by the power of the Holy Ghost being lifted up into the heavenly temple. In the truth, thy word is truth. Who's the word? The Lord Jesus. In the Son and in the Spirit, we worship the Father. That's the means by which we are brought into the heavenly temple. Okay? Through the veil of Christ's flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how we enter into heaven. So, you might say, think, think of other passages where seated in Christ, right? In the heavenly places. That's not future. We're seated in Christ now. We are in Christ. We are in the spirit. We're drawn into the Holy Trinity himself in his heavenly court to offer our worship because of the ascension. So what does the ascension mean for our worship? It means that we are actually able to come into the presence of God in the second person of the Trinity, in the third person of the Trinity. We offer the first person of the Trinity our worship. All together, all is one. If that doesn't blow your mind, <laughs> well, what else does the ascension mean? What does it mean for our life here? Well, real briefly, Let's look at what our Lord told the apostles before he went to the cross. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine 
and declare it to you. So he's promising when he goes away that he will send the Holy Ghost. And again, uh, coming back to uh, what St. Peter was saying in Acts. Remember that when the Spirit fell, when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, and they all spoke in tongues, and everyone was confused, you know, the first thing that St. Peter did was say, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, even though it was five o'clock somewhere. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he's saying Joel's prophecy is coming true right here right now and remember what i read um where he says being therefore exalted at the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit so he received the holy spirit from the father and then in turn he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing so again that's just evidence that Christ was doing exactly what he said he was going to do in St. John's Gospel. When he ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men. He poured out the Spirit. So what does the ascension mean for your life now? The reason that you have the Holy Ghost living in you as a Christian, the reason that you have the gifts, as Martin Luther said in a line that I can hardly ever sing, um, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sight. The reason you have the gifts, the reason you have the spirit is because of the ascension. And there's so much more, so much more to read about that, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews. But my point in making this is simply an appeal. Christ sat down to be your king. And I don't even like using king anymore because we say king, kingdom, blah, 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 so much. It doesn't even mean anything. I prefer emperor. Christ sat down to be the emperor of the empire of heaven. That's an important event. It's worth commemorating. Every bit as much as his birthday. Christ went into heaven as the high priest to offer his sacrifice in the heavenly temple. There's a sense in which salvation wasn't accomplished until the ascension because Christ went and offered himself there and went to make intercession for you constantly at the ascension it means something for our worship because he, he opened the way he went it means something for you in your life today about the spirit have happened if he hadn't gone back up into heaven and taken his humanity with him that's worth taking the day off. But even if you're not taking the day off, you know, most of us celebrate it in the evening. It's a Thursday. It's always a Thursday. It's in two weeks. Well, week and a half. Thursday the 14th. It's worth taking the night after work to go find a church and worship it. Now, again, I, you know, days and seasons and times and that sort of thing being what they are, I understand, you know, 
and maybe your circumstances are such that you can't make it into a church. But what if, again, all of us who name the name evangelical and say, we believe the Bible, we believe the scriptures, and we believe Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord over everything. You know, we talk like that all the time. What if all of us who thought that way and who say those things set aside some time to say to Jesus, you're our king. You know, we celebrate what you did. We celebrate your coronation. We celebrate you as the emperor. We celebrate you as our great high priest. We celebrate you as the prophet who's anointed us with the Holy Ghost. We celebrate you. I think it would bless his heart, you know, but what would it mean for us and our witness in, in, a, in a country that needs it so desperately if we all took time off to acknowledge Jesus is king? He's king now. He's not waiting to be king. He doesn't have to come sit on a chair in Jerusalem to be king in some, uh, you know, futurist imagination. That would be a demotion. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's ruling. Yeah. He rules everybody. Yeah. What if we acted? So I urge you, if you're in Houston and you don't have a place to go, man, join me at Holy Trinity. I've created a Facebook event. I'll link to it here. You know, all that kind of jazz. If you're somewhere else, find a church that does it. If your church does it, don't neglect the day. If your circumstances are such that you can't go to church, set aside some family worship time. Sing some songs about Jesus being our king. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Sing something to him. Pray to him. Praise him. And praise the Father for, um, for decreeing all of this. You know, think, think of the grand scene that we weren't really privy to in the Holy Scriptures. When he, when he came up to the ancient things, you know, I get a little weird just thinking about it. Think of Psalm 2 coming true. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. And he asks, and he gets them. The Lord says to my Lord, think of the Father saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's worth celebrating. So please do so. But anyway, that's drum throne theology. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you get something out of it. I hope you are blessed by the Ascension Day, but I hope you bless the Lord on the Ascension Day. So take it easy.